Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffog, your host for today. I'm a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area, and I'm excited for today's discussion. Um, with me in the studio today is a familiar friend and returning guest to our show, um, Dr. Bob Frank, who is here to give us an update on some recent movement in pediatric vaccines. Um, lots of exciting things to talk about today. So most of us know Dr. Frank from all his work during the pandemic and keeping us up to date on COVID COVID-19 vaccine rollout. But for those of you who don't know Dr. Frank or haven't listened to our previous fall podcast with him, um, could you share just a little bit about your work at Cincinnati Children's and maybe how long you've been practicing and some special interests, please? Sure. Um, I've probably been practicing longer than you've been alive, which is, but that, uh, <laughs> um, so actually I just uh, had my uh, 42nd year graduation from medical school. Um, and that, uh, so I've been... I still have you by a little. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> and that, uh, but I've been here at Cincinnati Children's for 17 years. I'm a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases, and I also run our Center for Vaccine Research. Wonderful. So we will jump right in. We have a few topics to discuss today. Um, lots of movement on the pediatric um, vaccine and viral treatment front. Um, so we, when we spoke last fall, I believe, uh, we talked a lot about just uh, changes in new vaccine rollout for Prevnar, um, specifically Prevnar 13, which is now given um, to potentially Prevnar 15, and now we have new, which is Prevnar 20. Um, if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of a update on kind of differences, and um, I know you've we've shared with each other some of your thoughts um, on the Prevnar 20 sure. vaccine. So, I mean, like I said, been I've been doing pediatrics for over 40 years, and I can tell you when we when I first started, we didn't have any of these vaccines, and so routinely every year we would see a lot of invasive pneumococcal disease, of pneumonia, bloodstream infections, joint infections, meningitis, very serious diseases that we hardly ever see anymore because of the vaccines, um, and so. The original PCV7, which is the vaccine that was first licensed for pneumococcus, did a true efficacy study. So you could see how many cases of pneumococcus were prevented by the vaccination because there were enough cases that you could actually show prevention. After that, all of our other studies have actually been serological correlates to be able to say that you're getting an antibody response that should be sufficient to decrease the pneumococcal disease because the original, even the original PCV7 decrease the vaccine preventable illnesses so much that it, we really couldn't do a true efficacy study after okay. that. Which is a good thing, I guess. Which is a good thing. That's a great thing. And, you know, it's the same thing we've seen with Hib and, and that so that diseases that were common that um, we now actually have to go find residents to show them the disease because it's so infrequent. So that's a tremendous thing and, and how effective the vaccines have been. But so for the, we're now with the PCV13, the invasive disease has been decreased by 95%. So we're seeing 5% of what we used to see. By adding in to the 15 valent, so a couple more valents, it decreased by another maybe 1%, and then up to the 20 valent, maybe a, a little bit more net. So the biggest thing I see the difference of adding the additional valences is now we have two companies that are providing vaccine that gives us a more stable supply um, because it's always a concern if you have one manufacturer, if something happens, you lose your vaccine. The other thing is competition is good, um, that it will then make a, a fair market price and that hopefully we'll see that in the offices that the, uh, the prices will be a little bit lower. I appreciate that. I don't think it's something our medical brains are always trained to think about, you know, that 
maybe this isn't a huge difference in kind of, you know, coverage for the different strains of the vaccines, um, but or, you know, huge impact on serious disease. But like you said, there's the business aspect of things for supply and demand and driving down prices. And like you said, if something I think we mentioned on our last podcast when we talked about this, we talk, I talked about formula shortage. And, you know, you get one plant that just makes everything and something happens and it's done and versus now we've got two multiple options. Right. Which is and, it, and that's, you know, we've, we've actually seen that happen with flu vaccine in the past is where we've lost flu vaccine because of a manufacturer and plant went down. So that's why I see the biggest benefit. And like I say, I think the other thing is that practitioners may see the added benefit is the companies may be looking at bundling and things like that to be able to add more competitive prices. So I know it's always a squeeze and, and we really appreciate uh, pediatricians sticking with vaccination because I know it's an extra uh, load. It's a, a, a financial burden that you're doing as a general pediatrician to have all these vaccines in your office. So I really appreciate you um, being there for the kids to make sure they're getting what they need. Thank you. And, and you for helping develop these as well, so and researching them. So um, so moving along to monovalent COVID vaccines, which um, from the latest I've heard, and you'll have much more info than I will about this, but um, that we expect out soon and soon probably within the next six, six to eight weeks, maybe. Um, and I guess my biggest question in sitting in the office and discussing at, you know, checkups with parents, you know, what are the current recommendations mm -hmm. for COVID boosters? So right now, just the bivalent is mm -hmm. what we have out for um, infants and children. And, you know, parents are asking because we're seeing some uptick in some COVID mm -hmm. cases. Do we wait? Do we wait for that monovalent to come out? Do we give the bivalent now? And if we choose to give the bivalent now, does that affect when the monovalent comes out, okay. whether or not I can get my child vaccinated? So very, very loaded question there. Yeah. No, those, those are great questions, though. And let's uh, see if I can uh, disentangle them a little bit on things. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, I, in the first place is that um, there is going to be a monovalent vaccine that's going to be coming out. And I agree with you. It's probably going to be in September, maybe October. But I think they're really pushing hard to get it out in September. Um, it's going to be against the variant that's out now. It's called X11B, I think it was. And so that we've run through all the Greek alphabets, so now we're having to go to other letters. Um, and, and one of the things I think, you know, is that for people to remember is that COVID, like flu, is an RNA virus. And because of that, it likes to mutate. And every time it mutates, it means our vaccine may not be as effective. And that's why we're updating the, the vaccine. So because we've had a lot of changes, what the CDC is now saying to be up to date is to, if you've been vaccinated before, is to have one dose of the updated vaccine. Um, and that the updated vaccine will be a monovalent, uh, so just against the one type. Uh, the bivalent was the original, if you will, vanilla COVID vaccine and then had the Omicron variant added in. The Omicron variant has modified a bit to this X11B. And so that the, the new variant is really an offshoot of Omicron. Um, and so that will be available. It's uh, going to be basically what's called a strain change. And that's what the FDA looks at as far as for flu vaccines. That's why we don't do a clinical trial each year is because it's the same process. You're just switching out one strain for another. And so it's called a strain change. Um, you know, I think one of the things to me is that if I were to ask, if people ask me, when would I give the um, updated booster? I would wait for it. And it, and so the, between now and six weeks of getting a, a bivalent vaccine or waiting six weeks and get a one dose, I would get one dose. I mean, don't stick the kids twice for the things. Sure. But the things that I would go back further, if you, one second on things, is that to me is that 
um, and I'll get on the soapbox a little bit, but you know, if you look at, we published an article a couple years ago looking at the uh, vaccine-preventable viral infections and the morbidity and mortality associated with each of those, that COVID outstrips every one of them, is that um, in a bad year, we have typically 150 to 200 kids that die of flu. I mean, that's horrible. But we've had six to 700 kids a year for the last three years. So we're over 2,000 children that have died from COVID. And so the, and the hospitalizations associated with COVID outstrip everything except rotavirus. Um, and that now luckily with the rotavirus vaccine has been so effective, the rotavirus uh, hospitalizations are way down. I mean, our hospitals used to be full with kids every year with diarrhea and dehydration from rotavirus, which is gone because of the vaccine. But while we've had close to 75% of kids over 12 have had a vaccine and about 50% of the kids between five and 11 have had a vaccine, we're still in single digits under five, single digits. And it makes no sense to me as far as that when at the, the next highest disease is flu is one third the number of deaths we've had in every one of these other vaccines was like, yes, these are important. Yes, this is important. Yes, it's important. And to me, what this says is that unfortunately COVID has transcended medicine and has transcended public health and has become a political issue instead of a medical issue. COVID is an infection and it doesn't care who you are or what you believe in or what color your skin is, it just wants a nose to be able to infect. And, and the vaccines have been incredibly effective to prevent disease and hospitalizations and death. And so while a question is a good question about what would you recommend to parents about the getting a, a dose now versus in six weeks, the more important thing is to say, COVID vaccines are important. COVID vaccines save lives. And if, I, if you ask me about the individual child if you say compared to me, what's if I at 68 get COVID, my risk of death from COVID is much higher than the risk of a five-year-old getting COVID and dying. There's no, there's no doubt about that. However, the risk of hospitalization and death in children six months to five years of age is not zero from COVID. We know it's not zero. And so, the, and we have a very, a very good way to protect against the infection. So That'd be my plea as far as that I know you guys have been beaten up in the offices. You don't even want to talk about COVID vaccines anymore because it's become such a hot button. But if you can stick in there and try to be, you know, putting out there about why vaccines are so important and why COVID vaccines are important, you're actually doing your patients a big favor. Yeah, I remember, and this is kind of going back to just immunology in medical school, but I had a colleague that once explained it to me that when COVID first started, COVID was truly that virus was a true antigenic shift. Mm -hmm. Like back in the 1920s with the flu pandemic, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to influenza, which every year there's a slight drift, right? Mm -hmm. Changes in the strains like we're talking about. And it seems like we're getting there with COVID. It's mm -hmm. still killing many more people, as, right. as you mentioned. But we're now to the point where, yes, there's going to be a little bit of drift. But you also have that immune memory from having Correct. those vaccines over and over again. So you get the virus. And even if it's not the newest strain that's preventing your immune system says, hey, I've, I've seen this before. Exactly. I've seen something super similar right. and it's much more effective. Yes. So I think I agree. We really need to get back on the, you know, it was there was so much excitement for the COVID vaccines initially um, for primary care physicians. But I also think just the 
importance of the vaccine in general, whether it be the bivalent that someone's sitting in the office and wants to get or they want to wait for the monovalent, just yes. And yes, you need it. And yes, it's very important. (laughs) Yes. And it's still important. Wonderful. Um, And before I move on to a very hot topic, uh, just one more little update. Do you anticipate a combo influenza COVID vaccine next season and maybe 2024? I would think that would be the soonest. I mean, you know, that they have a couple of companies have been working on an mRNA flu vaccine. So one of the things you'd have to have be the same kind of platform. And so that they now have uh, data on an mRNA flu um, and it's been looking pretty good. So I I think it's a possibility in the not too distant future of having a combined vaccination because, you know, anything we can do to decrease the number of vaccinations would be good. Absolutely. Well, we are going to dive right in now to a... um a little bit of a, a different, um, and I'll let you, you can kind of give your um, opinion and your insider kind of info on um, the RSV monoclonal antibody, which um, is not technically a vaccine, correct? Mm-hmm. It's a monoclonal antibody. Um, and this is really hot off the press. I think August 3rd, I believe, mm-hmm. was the true Mm-hmm. approval. And now right. I'm trying to remember whether that was FDA approval or that was actually the ACIP. I think that was the ACIP recommendation um, for the new RSV monoclonal antibody near Sevamab, I believe. There you go. Good job. Um, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's brand new, right? Yeah. So um, so first, if you could just take us a little bit um, through kind of how does the antibody work mm-hmm. um, and then what would be the clinical implications sure. of that? So um, nirsivimab is, as you're saying, a monoclonal antibody. So it's passive immunity. It's not a vaccine so that it's not going to give you long-term immunity. It's, it's in a lot of respect very similar to palavizumab. The difference between palavizumab and nirsivimab, though, is that palavizumab never was able to be shown to um, decrease more mortality, and it really was weak as far as even decreasing hospitalization. Um, but with the nirsivimab, what they did is that they took kids that were not eligible for palavizumab because they were older, they were outside the recommendations for palavizumab, and they give them the nirsivimab. And what they showed in the group that didn't, that, so they were the well group, um, that you decreased medically attended visits, you decreased hospitalizations, you decreased ICU visits. There were two very well done uh, New England Journal papers uh, looking at that. So uh, this is the really the biggest difference between nirsivimab and palavizumab is that uh, and it's one of the things that I think is going to be a big shift because, you know, we're talking about drift or shift is a big shift here is that um, we've been telling pediatricians for years and years and years, palavizumab is a very select population and that no, don't give it outside of that. The recommendations for nirsivimab is going to be for every child. Absolutely. And, and so it's going to be a big change. Um, but the reason that that change was made is because the data showed that you could decrease the medically attended visits, you could decrease the hospitalizations with nirsivimab, which you couldn't with the palavizumab. The, the great thing about the nirsivimab is one dose um, and versus the pali, which is uh, one a month for five months. And that uh, so, so yeah. it's a, uh, and the other thing too is that what the, um, from a marketing standpoint, what the, the sponsors or the, the industry makers were looking at is to try to make it um, that would be competitive with a dose of a vaccine versus palavizumab. So palavizumab is quite expensive, and it, uh, but the nirsivimab, they're trying to make it more in the line of uh, like a pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. I'm not sure the exact price, but that was what the target is. And, that, and part of the other thing, too, is that you may hear 
people use the word vaccine instead of monoclonal antibody. And part of that was because they wanted to, the sponsor wanted to get this approved as a vaccine because then it'd be covered for the vaccine for children, a VFC. Um, the good news is, is that um, the FDA was able to do a little bit of wrangling and that, uh, and it is qualifying for VFC. Wonderful. I think just the equity there is such, yes. A, yes. such an important thing yes. to, to talk about. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of ties into what we were talking about with Prevnar in terms of what you were saying. You know, my initial months ago is nercivimab. Okay, well, we have pelvizumab, right? right? Except for, like you said, five doses very expensive, obviously five doses because it doesn't last as long. I mean, this is a game changer for supply and demand and makes perfect sense why now it is available just cost-wise and the ease of use and availability of supply and doses. And um, Right. So a lot of it too, though, is it, it is that one dose, which is a great, but the, really the, the reason that it was um, – uh, recommended for every child is because of the ability to show the decrease in medically attended visits, the decrease in ED visits, the decrease in hospitalizations that palavizumab never could show. That's, that's um, and these are these are in healthy kids. So again, make it clear is that we're not talking about the studies being done in children with chronic lung disease or chronic heart disease. These were studies in otherwise well children um, that were then given the, the nirsivimab. Um, so it's a population that is getting RSV outside of the range of what you're considering high risk, that's the one that they looked at. And that's the group that they showed um, that there was a decreased medically attended visits, decreased um, ED visits, decreased hospitalization. So that's really the reason as far as the global recommendation, because they could um, show that it was really effective of doing all those things. I don't have breakdown of, you know, high risk versus non-high risk, but, and I think we as community pediatricians understand the importance of, you know, protection against RSV and the medical significance of the virus. But the numbers I had seen just in kind of preparing for this talk was 58,000 to 80,000 children and infants under age five hospitalized per year mm -hmm. per RSV season. And then somewhere between 100 to 300 deaths per year from yes. RSV. So yeah. very, very significant when you right. think about it in that way. I mean, you know, it's in some respects, it's kind of like when when we were doing um, hepatitis B vaccination for moms. In the first place, the, it was a selective immunization for mothers that were high risk. And it was very effective of preventing hepatitis B. However, what we found is that mothers at high risk, so that they were hepatitis B surface antigen, um, if those are the only um, mothers that were um, targeted, you missed most of the moms. And so if your high risk has a population, say 10% transmission, but it's only 1% of the population, and you have 90%, a 99%, and you have a 1% transmission, you have far more transmission in the low-risk group. That's a yeah. similar kind of thing with the RSV, is that the low, the non-high risk, so the kids without underlying illness, uh, are the vast majority of the population. Absolutely. And so that um, even though they have a lower overall risk per child of getting RSV, when you take that giant population and multiply it even by that smaller percentage, the outcome is many more cases that are that have no underlying um, illness. Yeah, very impactful for sure. So um, just moving along to some of the current recommendations um, for nirsevimab. Um, all infants under eight months of age born during RSV season, which then you get the, oh, the grayness of medicine, right? Um, so fall to spring, um, and I think in this area it will be October to March. Does that sound yes. correct? Okay. Yes. And then uh, 
I know there is some wiggle room just for community rates and things like that in terms of recommendations. Yeah, so that the what where is going to be the the tricky part is that if you have a baby that's born in April uh, and or May or June or July, August, and so the the ask there is going to be to keep a registry and then you call them back in. Okay. In October or November to be giving them their dose then. If they're born during the RSV season, the goal is to give them the dose of nirsevimab before they ever go home. Great. Um, so that it's done as part. And, and the goal, again, is to try to bundle that with the um, package, the insurance package with the pregnancy. And it's it just like the hepatitis B um, vaccine is that you're giving the uh, nirsevimab as part of that bundle. And you do anticipate that being more a nursery driven thing yes. before? Yes. I, okay. Yes. Because I know definitely the recommendations are within the first week of life. And, you know, often we see them in the office in, you know, that five to seven day range, um, which obviously we'd be able to catch some maybe that didn't get it in the hospital. But I think that makes the most sense for making sure that everyone gets. And that's why it was said in the, the first week is because it's really trying to target before they go home from the hospital. Sure. But let's say somebody goes home and they didn't get it within the first week. That's just a recommendation. It's still going to work fine. Um, and so if somebody comes in and they're a kid's three weeks old or a month old, they can st- still qualify, you know, so they still be fine to get it. Um, and so that it's, you're gonna have the group of kids that are born between October and February maybe, as far as that you would give it to them that year. After that, you would be, so March through September, something like I say, keeping a registry, then bringing them back in as practical because you're not gonna be able to give all those kids a vaccine in a day or something like that, sure. or maybe the monoclonal in a day. Um, So you'll have to kind of figure out how to schedule for that. And then the other thing is going to be kind of interesting as far as with the second year. Um, They're still talking about doses for the second year, and and that right now at least is more toward the the high-risk kids. Sure. And I was looking at some of those categories of high-risk for the second-year dose. Um, So obviously any immunocompromised, (laughs) chronic lung disease, anyone requiring oxygen, um, cystic fibrosis, things like that. The two, I guess, things just to mention that surprised me a little bit, um, weight for length less than 10th percentile. I thought that was an interesting, I don't know if that was one you had seen as No, I mean, but I I think it's probably just that they're maybe a little bit small and sure. that, uh, and so that a little nutrition bit nutrition hum- and slash nourishment and yeah, yeah absolutely and then um, American Indian and Alaska Native as well were kind of lumped in that group so and just- that's just because um, from epidemiological standpoints that they have a, a higher risk of having severe disease than uh, other uh, other backgrounds great good good to know for sure um, interesting uh, you know when we talked about just thinking as as you have been, um, but as this is more recent for primary care providers uh, in the office setting, just trying to think, you know, as you're talking, think what, what will our office flow be? Like you said, is it, you know, do we, we're going to have to have, and we're going to have to think about those things. Do we say, you know, April 1st, or, you know, we write any baby under whatever, you know, age and bring them back. So just a lot of, um, differences kind of in how the process will occur in the offices for this one there's going to be some yeah bumps in the road but that uh, you know and hopefully that the the product will be available fairly soon the manufacturer has said that they have a big supply so that uh, you know I think they're counting on trying to get it out to the market uh, this fall Um, but if you were in a situation where you have a child that would qualify for palivizumab and you don't have the nirsevimab please give them the palivizumab you know so that uh, don't get rid of the palivizumab yet. And that, uh, 
But if you have somebody that's, uh, and you have the nirsivimab, I would recommend switching over to that as soon as you have it. Sure. I think just for ease of administration mm-hmm. makes, makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And for even family compliance, because the pelvizumab with the five doses is, is quite a bit to keep up with. Um, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because it was something I did want to touch on, um, which you did, which is if, you know, nirsivimab is not available to go ahead and give the pelvizumab. But I think the other uh, one I wanted to touch on was if pelvizumab was administered initially, but less than five doses were given. Also, it's indicated to give the nurse at that Correct. as well. So, um, great. That's wonderful. And lots of good information there. So, a little bit of switch of gears here. Um, I believe in May, and you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this, there was also a RSV vaccine for adults approved. And maybe mm-hmm. it's an, it mm-hmm. might be a monoclonal antibody. Mm-hmm. I might. Mm-hmm. It is a, a true vaccine. vaccine. Um, is there... I haven't yet seen any data or any recommendations if a pregnant mother received that vaccine. Um, would there still be a recommendation to go ahead and give nirsevimab? Um, <laughs> so this is a... This is Only a, I get to see your face during this yeah, podcast. Yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's an excellent question that uh, a lot of us have been asking. And so uh, to answer your question is that there's, there is a vaccine. Uh, there's two groups of where it's been looked at right now. Um, one is in pregnant women, and the other is in—I'll uh, call it mature adults—and uh, that, uh, um, and that uh, has um, because there is a concern as as people age that there is an increased risk of um, RSV disease. So, but for the pediatric centric is, is really as far as for um, pregnant women, and that uh, the um, sponsor was again a very well done study number of. Uh, big number of women were followed. And what they did is that after they gave the vaccination, then they followed the babies through the first six months of life. And to look at, again, the uh, number of uh, ED visits, hospitalizations, and that and that the um, vaccinating mom uh, during the, they're trying, they tried to get it more toward the third trimester, so second to third trimester, um, would had decrease of 83% of um, medically attended visits within the first six months. So it, it worked very well. That's impressive, yes. And, and so the, but your question is an excellent one as far as, and one we don't have the data for yet, as far as what do you do? Is it if uh, a mom was given the vaccine? I think until we have data, otherwise there's nothing that we know that it would hurt a baby to give the nirsivimab. So my guess is what the, rec- we, honestly, we don't have data. And so um, my guess is the recommendation is going to be is that babies get nirsevimab, and that uh, you know there are a number of RSV vaccines that are being tested uh, in children, and so then it's going to be who gets the vaccine, who gets a monoclonal. Um, so there's a there's a lot of research questions out there that still need to be answered. So lots lots coming on that in yes. the near future. Um, but yeah, you know, sitting here in my pediatrician brain, I'm going, well, it's just extra immunity, right? <laughs> you know, but, but yes, you know, definitely need to make sure that there is a, at least some sort of a recommendation hopefully coming on that as well. So we'll, we'll definitely look out for that. Um, so just kind of moving along, I, is there anything, um, that we should worry about safety-wise, any side effects that we can tell when we're vaccinating um, these children in the office. So I, and one thing to mention, which I'm sure everyone listening probably understands, but that this is safe to be co-administered with any other um, 
vaccine, like childhood vaccine that mm-hmm. would be given, um, which gives us a lot of leeway to be able to give it at any visit, which is wonderful. Um, but I know parents are going to go, you're this talking is about new. the nirsivimab. No. Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I did. Yeah. I did completely switch gears. Um, you know, parents are going to say, well, what's the side effects? What, mm-hmm. what should we expect to see in our um, infants that have had this? So that uh, nirsivimab is the is the monoclonal antibody, and so uh, the adverse events you'd be expecting would be the similar of giving gamma globulin or giving palavizumab, and that most of it's going to be you're giving a shot, so that uh, it's going to hurt. There may be some redness or swelling in the site, but actually the the side effects otherwise have been very minimal. Um, it's been very safe. Um, and so that if you look at all the data, and that and to be like I said, totally upfront about things. In the study, there were six children that died, um, but when they, they very closely adjudicated those six cases and none of them they could find that had any association with being in the study. I mean, it was horrible that those children died, but that it all of them had alternative causes that were um, the reason for the death and, and not were pretty easily identified. Yes, and, yes, and yes. So, yeah, I mean... That's part of just real life data, right? Yes. So, which I mean, you know, unfortunate, that's, like you said. I but. mean, that's the thing as far as that with you know COVID vaccines and stuff like that. People say, well, you know, somebody got a COVID vaccine and they got a heart attack, but then you you know, people get heart attacks, and and so that's why it's so important to do clinical trials so rigorously to collect your data rigorously so that you can look at what's your rate of a side effect in the group that got a vaccine versus a placebo. And that's, you know, when people ask, why do you give placebos? That's one of the reasons you give a placebo so that you can see what the rate of of a side effect is in the placebo group. Because if it's the same, then it's not the study agent that did it. It's just, it just happens. Makes sense. I know you have mentioned, and I'm switching gears a little bit again on more kind of just practical um, questions and even for, for offices as well, as we look forward to this coming out in the fall, um, you mentioned vaccine for children and that the ACIP was able to kind of find a way to mm-hmm. hopefully have that covered for vaccines for children. Um, private insurance is coverage at this point. Do we expect it to be yes. good? No I problems, don't think there's, no I don't expect any issue there. No, that's an easy, quick answer. And I like it. So, um, because I know that'll probably also come up as we counsel mm-hmm. our parents for mm-hmm. this as well. So, well, great. Um, is there any other things that maybe we didn't talk about in terms of the nirsivimab that you can think of that you want to share? I think this is, is a very timely subject. It's been yeah. wonderful to learn about. And no, I, I mean, I, I, to me, this is a, a very exciting breakthrough. I mean, it really, it isn't just like, a lot of times when we'll get a new product, it's kind of like it's a me too, you know, like you had amoxicillin and you get this other cephalosporin. It's kind of like, eh, you can use this too. But the nirsivimab versus the palavizumab really is a huge difference. And that, uh, because it does offer such broad protection and has been so successful in decreasing the medically attended visits, the ED visits, the hospitalizations, so that, you know, my hope would be uh, this is going to be something that's going to look just like the rotavirus where we used to have kids in the hospital all the time. We don't see that anymore. Um, That would be a similar thing as I'm hoping with the RSV. It, it is a little wild to think, but and in, in you shared, obviously, you have much more experience and many more years practicing than I do, but um, and lots more knowledge for that reason as well. But, you know, it, this is probably the first big change to what I would call kind of the infant and childhood vaccination schedule that I've seen other than just small tweaks, like we talked mm-hmm. about Prevnar 7 to 13 to 20. This is 
brand new. And so really exciting. I, I think it's hard, and our colleagues that are listening will know this, but it's hard for maybe people who are non-medical to realize what a big deal this is. I mean, it's a big really, deal. Really it, it, yeah. And that, uh, I mean, you know, it could be actually then general pediatricians can have time to breathe during the winter because they're not getting slammed with every uh, acute gastroenteritis and every upper respiratory tract infection. Uh, we may be able to prevent a lot of those. Definitely. Well, I want to thank you for everything today. Um, this has been wonderful. I think a lot of, of good learning points and looking forward to hopefully some exciting um Fall administration. Of exactly. And, years, so. and then hopefully, you know, next year is that if I come back, is that you have me back, is that uh, <laughs> to be able to give you some answers to the question of what do we do if mother's been vaccinated uh, about uh, the, <laughs> the uh, uh, monoclonal for the babies? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you, Dr. Frank. Um, we appreciate your time and all your knowledge that you share with us. And it's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you.